It's uh, not a prayer that, which is my prayer, but it's a prayer which Paul prayed for Christians 2,000 years ago. But these words so fit in with where we are this morning. And I just want to pray this prayer, Paul's prayer, over you and over us today. Paul starts by saying that he prays to his Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his Spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. What a great prayer that is. Thank you ever so much. We're on week three of uh, 1 Corinthians. I've so enjoyed listening to the ministry the last couple of weeks as I've sat back and as Dan has unpacked for us uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the background and the context of, uh, of this great book. And, you know, I think the teaching's been just wonderful, very accessible and excellent teaching. Thank you, Dan. Just a quick recap on all of this. So, to, so that we can find our bearings this morning. Corinth was uh, an ancient uh, Greek church that had lots of problems. Thus the title of our series, A Love Affair with Problems. And it certainly had problems at Corinth, major problems in many areas of church life. There was uh, quarreling and division amongst their, their, their congregation. There was uh, problems in marriage and relationships. Problems in sexual immorality, with one member of the congregation sleeping with his stepmother, and the other members of the congregation weren't just turning a blind eye to him, they were actually, uh, they seemed to be approving of it. Then there were others, uh, other Christians who were taking fellow Christians to court. And Paul was very cross with them, actually, because they were airing their dirty laundry for everyone. And uh, it just begs the question, doesn't it? I wonder what Paul might say to those who are Christians and use Facebook and other social, social media sites in that fashion today to air dirty laundry. And then Paul had concerns over the way that they shared the Lord's Supper together, that the rich were ignoring the poor, their problems over the things that they believed. Um, they had question marks over the resurrection. They didn't believe that Christ had risen from the dead, or some of them at least. And, um, you know, they believe once you're dead, you're dead. Very much 21st century issues here. Uh, They were a very charismatic church. They had the gifts of the Spirit that were in operation in abundance. 
And yet Paul had some very strong words to them in the way that they practiced and used those spiritual gifts when they met together. So the church at Corinth, this first century church, was both charismatic and it was chaotic. Um, Not everything was bad though, as we read this wonderful letter, because in chapter 13 we have that magnificent chapter on love, which we often uh, read in uh, wedding services, and then we have that fantastic uh, chapter on the resurrection uh, of the dead, and the resurrection of the body, which we often read in funerals in chapter 15. So in 1 Corinthians, what you've got, you've got the sordid and the sublime. Dan made a very good point last week when he said and reminded us that um, the original letter didn't have chapters and subheadings and verses. They weren't there originally, that they came much later actually. It was in the 13th century the chapters were added to our Bibles. And it was three centuries later, in the 16th century, that verses were added to the chapters. And uh, it begs the question, doesn't it, you know, how did they cope? (laughs) Well, I'll answer that in a moment. But 75% of the history of the church, Bibles were without chapters and verses. And I suppose they coped because they didn't have personal Bibles like we have them. You know, the printing press... Uh, was only invented in the 15th century. So most of history, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have been believers along with us, just didn't have access to a Bible. Aren't we privileged? Maybe we should read it now and again. Okay. The first English Bible was uh, the New Testament, which had chapters and verses, was the Geneva Bible in 1560. I think I can understand why there was a desire to put chapters and verses in. Um, It's easier to come to the place that you're looking for rather than having to trawl through the the whole of the the book in order to find that passage. And they are a bit of a help. But I think that uh, chapters and verses are also a bit of a hindrance. Because you might have uh, seen this when you've been reading yourselves that sometimes the end of a chapter and the beginning of a new chapter cuts across a train of thought. You think, my word, it seems to be the same subject. And we'll find that particularly in our subject uh, matter today. A good example of this is um, Dan last week was uh, speaking to us about 1 Corinthians uh, from chapter, chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. There we are introduced to the problem that this church had of of divisions and quarrels and that argument take out the the chapters and verses and subject headings goes all the way through to the end of chapter 4 and um, what I would say to you is maybe this week when you're on your own get your Bible, get a notepad and a pen and just read through from chapter 1 verse 10 to the end of chapter 4 and try to get the the flow of argument. Uh, It might appear to you on occasions that Paul does a couple of detours, but it's the same argument. He is speaking about divisions within the Corinthian church. That's your homework, okay? Okay. Let's pray together. Lord, we just pray that you would enable us by the power of your Spirit to understand this ancient letter to the church at Corinth. And we pray, Lord, that today that you will illuminate our minds and inspire our hearts 
and cause what we learn to be translated into the way that we live our lives for your honour and glory. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been fearful of something? I'm not talking about serious illness or hospitalisation, but a fear that came over you because of something that you were required to do, like maybe sing your first solo in a school play. I have no experience of that one. It certainly was one thing that I was never asked to do at school, sing a solo. Well, I was thinking about this this week, and uh, as I look back over my life, there were many, many, many occasions I can say that I was fearful of things that were before me, things that I'd been asked to do, and uh, sort of just share a few of them with you now. Um, at the age of 15, I um, let me put the photograph up. There we go. At the age of 15, I played in the Welsh Cup final. Uh, we were playing on the, the ground, like the haircut, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we were playing on the ground where Swansea City played, and I played them many times before. But on this occasion, it was different. Um, there, was a, there was a good crowd. There were reporters from the local press. Uh, there were international selectors. There were also scouts from top football teams uh, who were coming to look for new talent to sign them on to, to top clubs. We were also playing our local rivals, so there were bragging rights. There's a lot of pressure. And, uh, you know, for those who were at the men's breakfast yesterday listening to Phil, you know, it is nothing compared to what Phil experienced in uh, having to take a penalty in a, in, in, in a cup final at Wembley. So we're not in the same league there. But I was 15 year old. This was a huge thing. And I was so incredibly fearful. Fearful that I wasn't going to be the, respons- the one responsible for losing the game. That I wouldn't score no goal. Uh, I've done that before now. And that I wouldn't let myself down. I wouldn't let the team down. Actually, I hoped that I might score the winning goal. Well, I did neither. But we did win 4-1. But looking back, I was very fearful of, 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 of that game. Then there was another occasion when I was asked to give my first ever sermon. And I drove to the church, Merton Methodist Church there in the Gower, and um, I was 21 year old, I'd been a Christian for about three years, and all the way to that church, you know, I wasn't praying that God would do wonders, I was praying that the congregation would be very small. I was incredibly nervous, you know, having to stand up before people to talk, it was, uh, and yet I felt that I, 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 should, have, I, I should be accepting that uh, offer when it came, and, but I was so nervous. And when I got there, there were half a dozen people there, and I thought, oh, this is, this is okay, I think. And one of the elders took me to one of the rooms in the back of the church, and we prayed, and I came out, spot on 11 o'clock when the service was starting, and there were about 100 people there. Well, I, I could barely stand up, I really could. And uh, in this particular church, you had to go walk up a number of steps to the, the grand pulpit. Well, I, I was just praying, Lord, take me now. You know, Lord, this is not a bad time for your second coming. You know. <laughs> yeah. Many, many other examples. And as I say, so many of them in my life. You know, roll on 31 years. Uh, on this occasion, I was sitting in a viva, which is an oral examination, before uh, a panel of academic theologians at Bangor University. 
and I was having to defend before them a piece of research that I'd worked on for over three years. And uh, I know that some of you here have uh, experienced that yourselves. It is one of the most mind-blowingly scary things that I have ever done in my life. And having been in that room with these three brain boxes, I then um, was asked to leave the room. I I defended my thesis for 45 minutes or so. I left the room and I was asked to stand in the the corridor, almost like a naughty schoolboy. But I tell you what... I just stood there in fear and trembling. And the fear was intense. It was a fear of failure. And that fear was just palpable. Another story. A friend of mine told me about his greatest fear. For years this guy lived as a gay man before becoming a Christian. And uh, becoming a Christian changed his life totally. Surprise, surprise. And he believed that he should stop living the kind of life that he'd been living as a very promiscuous gay guy. And he also believed that for him, change was possible. He met a lovely Christian girl. They decided to marry. And as Christians, neither of them believed in sex before marriage. But as their happy day got closer, a great fear came over him. And I don't know how to put this politely. I'll give it a try. The fear was that he would not be able to be the man that his wife had hoped for on their wedding night. He'd never been with a woman before. He'd been with many men. And the sheer panic and the fear and trembling. Now, Paul had one of those fear and trembling moments to it. Nothing at all to do with relationships or the opposite sex or the same sex for that matter. Or football or vibers. But I would say that it probably had something to do with his first sermon. The first sermon, that is, that he preached in the city of Corinth. And we're going to read that this morning. I'm uh, reading from the New Living Translation. And uh, then the first five verses, (coughs) we read, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. And Dan told us last week that What seems wise to men is foolish to God. And what is wise to God is often foolish to many people. And in chapter 1 we we looked at that together. Paul tells us about the foolishness of God's message. And he also tells us about the foolishness of the messengers. The foolish message is the message of an execution of a man. It's the story of the crucifixion of Jesus in a conquered corner of the Roman Empire. And that is our message, and it is the message that has power to change people's lives. You see, that story of Christ crucified was a story which was ridiculed. It was nonsensical to the ancient world as much as it is nonsensical to many people in our society today. 
the foolish messengers are those whom God has chosen to be his own ordinary people who, as Paul says, are not wise by human standards, not influential, not of a noble birth. And Paul shows us here that God just puts conventional wisdom on its head. And the result is that the only thing, or should we say the only one that we have left to boast in, is in the Lord himself. And now, having focused on that, Paul moves on. He has spoken about the foolish message, the foolish messengers, and now it's the foolish preacher, where Paul speaks about himself in these verses. And Paul says that he came to them in weakness. And at this point, he is looking back a few years to the very first time when he visited this city of Corinth. And he says, when I came to you, first word, when I first came to you. Well, when was that? Well, you've got to do a little bit of detective work here. And Acts is the history of the early church. You go back into Acts, you can find out all about Paul's missionary journeys. It was on his second missionary journey that um, he came to this place. And uh, we put some of the cities up here. Um, on his journeys, journeys, he came to a, a city called Philippi, and then to Thessalonica, to Berea. Then he came down the coast of the Aegean Sea on the Greek mainland into Athens. And then from Athens, he came across to Corinth, uh, across that isthmus, which is um, a very narrow peninsula of land. And all of this is found in Acts chapters uh, 16, 17, and 18. And Athens, which is the place before Corinth, was a place where there were famous scholars and philosophers. Actually, the, the word philosophy comes from two Greek words. Philo, love, and Sophia, wisdom. And philosophy is about loving wisdom. And those who came to um, this place were certainly those who loved wisdom. And um, the people paid good money to listen to these philosophers who came into their city. And they were often bringing new and novel ideas. Now, you see, in the days before Netflix, uh, if you wanted to be entertained, this is how you did it. You went out and you listened to these guys who came into your city. And between Athens and Corinth, these two cities, it was probably the greatest intellectual center the world has ever known. That was the kind of area that this was. And these cities were only 50 miles up the road from each other. The same distance as Swansea and Cardiff. Two other world centres of intellectual brilliance. <laughs> I thought I'd just tell you that, okay? <laughs> uh, Dan told us last week that when Paul got to Athens, he was debating with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers on a place called Mars Hill. Yeah? <coughs> and um, Mars Hill in Athens is also known as the Areopagus or the Hill of Ares and what's happening here is that the Hill of Ares Ares was the Greek god for war and then in Roman times it became known as Mars Hill because that was the Roman god for war um, so sometimes you will find in certain Bibles it will speak of Mars Hill. On other occasions it will speak of the Areopagus. And to confuse matters, there was a council that met on this hill and they were also called the Areopagus, okay? It's clear as mud, isn't it? 
But again, you know, this is quite uh, normal in, in the New Testament. We see the place where Jesus was crucified, this, that place that looked like a skull, uh, but, and, and the two names. Uh, it was known as Golgotha, which is the Aramaic name, and also it was known as its Latin name, which was Calvary. And the same thing here, this, this outcrop of land which is on the edge of the city of Athens. Um, I don't know if any of you have visited Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, London. Any of you been there? It's, uh, it's quite a fascinating place, really, because people will bring their chairs or soapboxes or sometimes a stepladder, and they will walk up their stepladder and start addressing uh, anybody who's around. And the last time Julie and I were there, there were probably half a dozen uh, speakers, some on chairs, some on park benches, some on their stepladders, and they were addressing their mini crowds. And I imagine that that's probably like Mars Hill, that we read of Paul when he went to Athens. And probably it was a little bit like that. You see, Paul, he came into this city, and um, he studied the religious life of Athens uh, and the marketplace before getting to Mars Hill. And the one thing that he noticed about this city... And all of this background is so, so important for understanding where this chapter is going. So, sorry, I'm going to spend a little bit more time just focusing on this so that we can get the picture here. The religious life in Athens was really, well, it was littered with temples and altars. And then he came across this unusual altar and it was inscribed to an unknown God. And the reason for that is that basically people were superstitious and they were afraid that they might have missed out one of the local deities because they believed in many gods. That they might have missed out one of the local deities inadvertently, not given them the honour that they needed and in doing so, that god, that local deity might be angry with them, might be rather upset and uh, offended and snubbed and actually then might bring an earthquake to them or pestilence, or sickness, or misfortune. So by erecting this altar for the unknown God in the city of Athens, it was really a safety net. It was like a catch-all, fail-safe solution to their inadvertently um, excluding some deity. And I find that totally ironic, because this was the academic centre for the world, And yet there was such incredible superstition there. But isn't that like today? You know, we think of ourselves as so advanced today, and yet there is such superstition around. You know, we are probably living in the most advanced technological, scientific era of the history of the world. Well, we are. And yet, for those who touch wood and refuse to walk under a ladder... And for those footballers who come onto the pitch, crossing themselves, which is not to do with religion, I don't think, or most of the time it's not, it's a kind of superstition. And then for those who suffer with triskaidekaphobia. Triskaidekaphobia. Does anybody know what triskaidekaphobia is? Can any of you say it? No, we won't go there. Triskaidekaphobia. Well, let me put you out of your misery. It is the fear of the number 13. And I was really interested to note just the other day when I looked this up that the elevator company Otis 
revealed that 85% of high-rise flats and offices where they had installed elevators missed out floor 13. (laughs) We are talking of the 21st century here. 85% of them. Quite incredible to show the superstition of our day. Paul, when he got to Mars Hill, he used this statue of the unknown God as his entrance point. You see, he tried to get people to listen to him. And if you read through um, Acts chapter 17, you will find out that he quoted their own poets. He was aware of their society. Basically, he spoke their language. And um, he did everything he could to get through to these brilliant scholars And do you know what the result? This is what they said to him. What is this babbler trying to say? And again, it's really interesting to note that the Greek word for babbler means seed picker. And uh, what they were saying to Paul here was that he was just like a little bird that went around picking this seed and then picking that seed and then picking the next seed. And he was going around through the marketplace, through the city, and he was just picking up a little bit of learning here, a little bit of teaching there, and a little bit of knowledge from that place. And they weren't very, very complimentary to him. Which is very unfair to Paul. Because a modern day Paul, let me put Paul in modern, modern day language, okay? Paul. He would be a man who could speak Chinese in Beijing, quoting Confucius. <clears throat> he could probably write closely argued theology in English and present it at Oxford University. And he could also defend his cause in Russian before the Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow. Are you impressed? You must be impressed with this guy because that is what he was. He was brilliant. He was no babbler. He could hold his own in any company. And Paul went into this city and he he, he followed his own advice. He became all things to all people in order to win some. That's what he wrote later on in this second letter to Corinthians, or rather his fourth from what Dan said the other week. And to these philosophers on Mars Hill, he spoke to them on their terms. And the fascinating thing is this. As long as he spoke about their thoughts and their teachings and their poets and their world, they listened. But as soon as he started saying anything specifically about God's truth, The atmosphere changed. Doesn't that sound familiar? (laughs) You can talk with your friends about all sorts of things. About football, about the kids, about X Factor, about the European Union, about British weather. I don't know. No problem. But the moment you mention God or faith or spiritual stuff, they clam up. Very often that's true, isn't it? They clam up and the atmosphere changes. And we read that in this city, we're still on the background, we're not going to get very far today, I'll I'll tell you that now. (coughs) They sneered at him. Some of them sneered. In fact, there were three reactions. Some sneered at him. Others wanted to inquire more. And still others believed. And those three reactions you will always get to the Christian gospel. And people in this room today will probably fit into those three categories. I don't imagine there will be too many people here this morning, because why would you be here, who would be in the first category of sneering. 
But there may be some of you who are saying, well, yeah, okay, this is interesting. I want to know more about the Christian faith. Tell me more. How do I get to know God? How do I get my life sorted? And there may be other, well, probably the vast majority would be in the third category, whereby we believe. (coughs) But you see, following this time, Paul left that city of Athens voluntarily and, and, and on his own. In other cities, you read in the New Testament, he, he left because he was thrown out. He was kicked out of most places, or escorted out. But in Athens, he left by his own volition. And on his way from Athens to Corinth, that 50-mile walk, I can imagine him asking himself, scratching his head, if you like, how on earth do you reach a city like Athens with the gospel? How do you reach a city like Corinth? A city where their God is their intellect. And he must have gone an awful long way, scratching his head in bafflement and bewilderment and puzzled over this perplexity. You see, Athens wasn't a complete failure for him. There were some believers there. But unlike other churches other cities he had not left a church in Athens and you can read through your entire New Testament there's no record of a church being left in Athens in other places, yes, other great cities Philippi, we have a letter in our New Testament yes, Corinth, yes Thessalonica, yes Ephesus, yes Athens, no and as Paul walked I believe that he thought about this and I believe that he came to the conclusion that he would try a different strategy to reach the Corinthians and establish a church there. And that's what we are finding in these first five verses. He decided, rather than use lofty words and impressive wisdom, he would just make it simple and rely on God's power. And that was his strategy. That he would go to them with a very straightforward message of two things, two truths. Christ and Christ crucified. That was it. That he was going to start with a person, the person of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's where the Christian life starts. And when we share our message, the good news with other people, that's where our message really starts. It's with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Everything is for him. The whole of our Christian faith is centered on Jesus. You see, there are some people who proclaim Christianity as a method of success. Others proclaim Christianity as a a system of thought. Some people um, present Christianity as a a pattern of uh, a a pattern of living. You know, a new kind of life and a new kind of living. But Paul said, no, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do, I'm going to present a person. You see, and when we present the person of Christ, we actually provide a method of success. Because Jesus is the way. And we also present a system of thought. Because Jesus is the truth. And we also provide a pattern for living. Because Jesus is the way. And you find all of those things once you have found a person. And the second thing that uh, Paul did was not just present a person, but a person who had been crucified. And uh, the NIV speaks of Christ crucified. And I think that that is only 
what Paul was trying to say in shorthand. Because later on in this letter, he shares a much more extended um, uh, passage uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 3. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So when Paul says that his message was Christ crucified, he doesn't mean to say that he's only preaching the death and what happened on Good Friday, the death of Jesus. But he is saying here, in shorthand, it's the whole of the Easter story. To preach Christ crucified is also to preach Easter Sunday and the resurrection. Now, you know, the world at large, you know, people who are not Christians, they will generally accept that there was a person, a historical person, who lived at once upon a time called Jesus. Most people will accept that, that Jesus was alive, but is now dead. And people will speak of Jesus in the past tense. That he was a wonderful man, yes. That he was a wonderful prophet or a wonderful teacher. But that wasn't what Paul was getting at here. And his message of Christ crucified is also speaking about Easter Sunday. Because death without a resurrection is defeat. Is defeat. And it's nothing at all to get ever excited about. But you see, Paul in this wonderful chapter 15 says that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we, not only the Corinthians, but all of us, we lose big time. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins, he says. He says our faith is futile. He also says that those that, who, are, who have gone on before us, who passed away, that they are lost forever if there is no resurrection from the dead. And he shows that everything stands on the resurrection of Jesus. And those who went singing to the lions and those who have been martyred for their faith were nothing but fools. Paul says here, my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only in the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. You see, the, the church members here uh, in Corinth they were trusting in human leaders that was their big problem wasn't it you know, some of them were saying we follow Paul we follow Apollos, we follow Peter the spiritual ones were saying we follow Christ but Paul is saying that such thinking is absolutely absurd and he's showing himself here his own weakness and that his reason for doing this was that he didn't want anybody to follow him and he desired their faith to rest in God not in humans. And Paul was totally devoid of ego. It's been said that there were two wonderful preachers in London. You came away from one, and you said, what a wonderful preacher. And you came away from the other, and you said, what a wonderful saviour. And Paul didn't care what uh, people said about him. And as long as the message got through, and, uh, and the power of God was at work. And you see, one of the most visible demonstrations of the power of God at work in this world is the evidence of a changed life. You know, the best argument 
that you have to someone who may be far cleverer than you, whose intellect might be far, far superior to your own, is the evidence of a changed life. It was uh, English writer Edgar Wallace who once said, I can never be an atheist as long as I live on the same street as that man. Wow, what a saying. Oh, for that to be said of us, that our neighbours could never be atheists because they live on the same street as us. Wouldn't it be wonderful? And the principle here of what Paul says, he says, when I, I relied on the power of the Spirit, I did this that you would not trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. It applies not only to preachers, but it applies to all of us. All of us. It applies in every area of our lives where we are tempted to trust in our own strength, in our own wisdom, rather than trust in the gospel and in the power of the Spirit. It applies in church, you know, you know, whether it's church organization or leadership skills or business acumen or church buildings or aesthetics or children's or youth work or higher degrees or eloquence or humor or musical competence, whether it's choirs or music groups. You see, it's possible to possess all of those things and not witness God at work. And it's possible to have none of those things and yet witness a demonstration of the power of God. Have you got me there? You know, we're meeting in a great space here this morning. It's a bit hot here, I know. Um, But it's a great space. But we could be meeting in a tin hut. Uh, Not with a worship band singing a cappella. Sat on rickety wooden pews. Listening to a preacher who is giving a poor exegesis of a bad translation of a doubtful rendering of an obscure verse of a minor prophet. The important thing is that we are trusting, that we are relying, not on ourselves, on our own abilities, but upon the gospel and upon the demonstration of the power of God. You know that God can speak through an ass, don't you? He's done it before. Read the story in the Old Testament of Balaam. And on many occasions in many churches, particularly this one, when I'm preaching, he still continues to do it. But, you know, the question is, not so much whether an ass can speak. The question is whether we are listening to what God has given the ass to say. All right? Hey, listen, I, I, I'm through. There's so much more that we can do here. There's no way I'm going to get much further than this this morning. The good news is that if you're part of life groups, and I encourage you all to be part of life groups, in your life groups this week, you'll be able to study the whole chapter together. And um, if you want to pick up those, uh, uh, those notes, they're on our website with the podcast. And uh, please consider, if you're not part of a group, to join uh, a life group. Because it's great. it's great to come along on a Sunday morning, part of a larger congregation. But it's also great to have those more intimate settings where you can make friends, where you can pray together, where you can uh, just study together as well. So let me finish. The radical lesson here probably one of the greatest lessons for us to learn, is that sometimes we can fool ourselves into thinking that good organization and good leadership and great music and great preaching is what we need in getting us to reach people. But that simply isn't the case. It's good to have those things. It's better to have those things, not have them. But we also need to rely on the Holy Spirit and on the message of the Gospel. So, This morning, 
I want us all to walk away from this place not saying, wasn't that great music this morning? There's not much likelihood of you saying, what a great preacher. So that's, that's beside the way. Uh, or remarkable children's ministry or welcoming building or lovely people. But my desire, and I know Dan's desire as well, is that we should walk away from this place saying, what a wonderful saviour. Amen. Let's, guys, would you like to come back, please? Let's, let's, would you stand? Let's